Hello, everyone. Welcome to Seek, Go, Create. This is your host, Tim Winders, coming to you as usual from the passenger seat of Theo, our motor coach, our home that we travel and live in. And I'm excited about the conversation today for those of you that are listening in. I, 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 could, I was connected to this guy a while back via uh, some stuff that he did, listened to some of his sermons, read his book, and uh, this is going to be a great conversation today that everyone needs to hear. So I'll get to him in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to remind you that on Seat Go Create, we're all about redefining success in business, leadership, and in ministry. Today, we're going to hit all of those topics. And one of the things you're gonna to wanna to do is go check out our website for the extensive detailed notes for this episode. We have someone transcribe and take notes on every word said, and then they take it and make an outline out of it with timestamps so that you can go to each section, review it, go back to it, say, wait, I think I heard something. Might've been the Holy Spirit, might've been the guest, might've been Tim, I don't know. I wanna go back and listen to it. You're going to want to do that today with this episode. Any resources we mention, if we mention other resources, books, links, all of that is in our notes at seekgocreate.com for this episode and every episode. And so make sure you check that out. If it's your first time visiting, welcome. If it's your first time visiting the website, make sure you give us your best email address so that we can stay in touch. Today we have Justin Kendrick as our guest, and he's the lead pastor of Vox Church which is up in the New England area, up in uh, Connecticut. He founded it in 2011 with a small group of friends on the doorstep of Yale University. That's probably being probably fun being at the entrance of a university like that. Since then, it's grown to multiple locations across New England. Justin, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Tim, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, glad that you're here. All right, Justin, first question. I gave you a little bit of warning. We're on a plane. We're out and about, maybe not in your typical work environment, we bump into each other and I ask you the question, what do you do? What do you usually tell people? Yeah, that uh, that answer has shifted through the years. But in the last couple of years, uh, my go to is just straightforward. I say, well, I'm the pastor of a church. And as soon as I say it, I love to just kind of lock eyes with that person. And I learn a lot in the next 30 to 60 seconds about their story, about their background, about what they're open to. And then, uh, you know, the conversation goes a host of different ways, but that's it. I just usually say I'm the pastor of a church and, you know, that'll tell you a lot about the person. Yeah, that's interesting. I bet you get a lot of, um, I don't know, this, the, the movie just popped in my head and you're much younger than me. So you probably don't remember it, The Exorcist where some people's oh, heads yeah. spin and, you know, green stuff comes out <laughs> of their mouth. It's a, it was a horrible scene. Anyway, um, give us a couple of responses. I'm just curious because yeah. that's, uh, you know, probably of all the things people could say, I'm a lawyer, yes. I'm a, I'm a used right. car salesman, I'm a pastor, I'm a politician. Yep. I'm guessing you get a lot of varied response. Tell me some good and then tell me a few yeah. ugly. Yeah, for sure. You know, when you're in the, uh, so I'm from the Northeast, I'm from New England. So up here, most of the time, uh, there is a significant part of the population that doesn't really understand what a pastor is. Uh, they think immediately they think priest. And so, you know, this is a predominantly Catholic area where uh, a lot of people aren't practicing Catholics, but we're culturally Catholic. That's how I grew up. And so right away, it's kind of funny because right away, typically they go, oh, uh, so that's that's got to be tough, huh? You know, and what they're really saying is, so you're not sleeping with anybody, you know, and, and then I, I right away, I tell them, no, 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 I'm a pastor. So I have a wife, I have four kids and they go, oh, that's allowed. And, and so typically the conversation goes that direction and it starts to shift the paradigm, you know, like, oh, wow. Okay. So you can have a family and, and, and you do, and, and you don't wear a robe. I remember this one time uh, a new guy came to our church and he said, Hey, uh, you're the pastor. And I said, yeah, he said, where's your robe? And I say, oh, I put it on right before I go out on the stage. And he said, oh, okay. And then I went out without a robe on. And, and after the the service, he pulled me aside and said, Hey, uh, where are you, you were, you were messing with me. And I was like, yeah, I was just, I was just playing with you, man. I'm just wearing my jeans. And so, um, so, you know, that, that's a, that's a response I get in the Northeast. Um, of course in the Bible bell, or if you're traveling outside of new England, um, yeah, the, the conversation, sometimes people will immediately jump into, let me tell you how spiritual I am. Like I've got to like kind of prove myself to the pastor. And so that's always a unique conversation where I just try to lead that person back to grace that, Hey, thank God for the mercy of Jesus and that we can't earn our way. 
Um, and then some people, you know, right away, you know, they've got church hurt, you know, and so they immediately start telling you how lousy pastors are. And my typical response in that moment is to agree with them, to say, listen, I have seen it, felt it and experienced it myself. And, um, and there's a lot of broken people in this world, so I can identify with that. And that kind of can be a disarming thing for people as well. Yeah, that's good. I love that word grace you threw in there because I don't know that we could grasp the grace that the Father mm -hmm. and Christ has for us. Yeah. But I think our role as followers is to show it and share it as best we can in our flawed physical yeah. condition we're in. And listen, we've seen a lot of mess and junk in the church and all that. So it's interesting, the paradigms there. Uh, we did an interview recently, and, and uh, maybe we could try to include it in the notes where we were talking to a leadership uh, person from the business world, and they were talking about shepherd leadership, which I've heard a lot of. I've, I've been in the leadership world my entire life almost. And I actually asked this question. I'll ask the same thing of you because you brought up the word pastor, which is yep. basically shepherd uh, you know, you mentioned a lot of people don't understand it. And I think we're in a world where people don't understand what shepherd means. Uh, why don't you, for us, let's just kind of get started here. Let's go deep. What, what yep. is a pastor? What is a shepherd? What is that role in 2022, 21, whenever people are listening in? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah that's such a good question. Obviously, theologians have debated this for a long time. And I think there's kind of two sides to it, right? In the Bible, the words are interchangeable in some places where it talks about an overseer or a an elder or a, a leader within the church. And I think when the scripture uses that term, it's talking about someone with uh, influence and authority, someone who teaches the Bible, someone who leads the church uh, in often a governmental way. But then it also outlines this idea of a shepherd, and that's more the, um, the person, you know, that really actually cares for people that um tunes into people and i would say that shepherding or pastoring is actually a, a a title and not always an office so what i mean by that is you can be a pastor or have a pastoral gifting but not necessarily be an elder or an overseer in a church and so just like a person can be an evangelist but not an elder or an overseer or just like a person can be a prophet but not an elder or overseer mm -hmm. in the same way a person can be a pastor and so that pastoral heart is an individual who comes alongside someone and walks with them in their spiritual growth journey and then challenges and propels them in that growth journey towards Jesus. And so that can look a lot of different ways. It will almost always include a ministry of the scripture, teaching the Bible, uh, you know, living the Bible. But I think, you know, the most powerful uh, element of a pastoral gift is life on life, flesh and blood modeling. And of course, this is the way that Jesus did it, right? And so, in other words, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm living out my convictions about Jesus in front of you. And I'm actually living out my flaws too, not just my successes and the ways I do everything perfectly. I think a lot of pastors got in trouble because they thought, oh boy, my kids have to be perfect. My home has to be perfect. My wife has to be perfect. Everybody's got to be perfect. And it's like, well, if you create that paradigm for people, then you're setting them up for disappointment because you're not, right? And so for me, I think a pastoral gift is really about not expressing this perfect version of yourself, but instead expressing this deeply honest version of yourself that is aimed at loving and following Jesus. And I think that honesty is actually what disarms people and helps people and heals people that, you know, that I am not, you know, perfect and I haven't figured it all out, but the journey of God's grace really is transformative and you can see it in my life. And so, um, yeah, I think that is really the, probably that modeling is the the linchpin of what it really means to be a shepherd. Yeah, it's interesting. Earlier, you said that a lot of people, when they meet you and they find out you're a pastor, they immediately go into the, I'll call it impressing you mode to maybe yeah, yeah. check a box or punch their ticket. That's how I go to heaven or that's yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and I do think that that has, oh, I hate to, I'll use the word tainted. I, I I, I really separate out religion from mm -hmm. what you sure. talk about in your book that we're talking about later and bury your ordinary is basically relationship. And, yeah. uh, and, and I love, cause this is one thing I heard in what you just said is that in the role that you're in, you model and facilitate the relationship with the father. 
instead of being a conduit mm-hmm. to the Father. See, a lot of people, they go to church, and you know this. This is kind of me ranting a little bit. They go to church thinking, okay, if I, checked it, if I check this box, I'm good, right? <laughs> yep, yep. So, uh, so anyway, so, so a lot of traditions of man and things out there. You, about 10 years ago, I just listened this morning to your 10-year service y'all had at the, uh, I think wow. it was a big bowl yeah. or a facility there that yeah. you had, which just sounds yeah. really cool. Sound like a nice crowd there. Let's talk about uh, Vox Church. First of all, I got to know the origins of the name. And, yeah. uh, and just, just give me, and let me just tell you something too. I'm a, I'm a business guy. I love stats. I love numbers. But I also love to hear the heart of what's going on with the organization. I think so many times we talk churches, we talk this campus, we got this many people and this many people show up and sometimes we even stretch those numbers. I know that's not you, but you, you know what I'm saying, amen, brother? We pasteurize them, yeah. Pasteurize, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell us about your church. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the name comes out of John 5.25. Uh, our journey with this church, you know, um, really started with this sense that God was doing something special in the Northeast. So Hmm. New England is historically known over the last 75 years as the least church region in the United States. Fewer people attend church, follow Jesus than any other place in America. Fewer people read the Bible. So I was just recently in Phoenix and there was a church there praying for the 48% of people who don't attend church regularly in Phoenix. And, um, And I looked over my wife and I about fell off my chair because it's 98% in our city. And so, you know, it's just a very different dynamic, but, but we also knew that in the midst of all the noise of New England, you've got all the Ivy League schools, you've got a lot of wealth and, and influence. They're also the stingiest people in America. And uh, in the midst of all that noise, uh, God still speaks. And so, you know, John 5, 25, Jesus says, the day is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. And he's not talking about some future time. He says it's now here, it's present, which means that uh, the spiritually dead, every one of us that has a innate desire for God, but a disconnection from him because of our brokenness, because of our sinfulness, now by God's grace can be reborn. We can hear his voice. We can actually experience that mystery of regeneration where God whispers to our inner man and we come alive and then we live. And that's, that's the power of the voice of God in our hearts. And so, you know, it's that deep calls unto deep. It's not always with my ears. It's not always with my mind. It's not always with my emotions. It's even deeper. It's my spirit. And so that's been our big prayer for um, the last 10 years, that New England would become the most spiritually vibrant place on earth and that the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God. And so we started just praying, God, how would you have us say that in a way that's memorable and unique? And so Vox is the Latin word for the voice. And so, um, yeah, that's where the name came from. We, we just began to pray, God, would you make us part of your voice to this region uh, so that we could be a part of seeing people turn back to you? And yeah, for 10 years now, um, we have just seen a very small community that started uh, with a couple of families and a few uh, small homes in the city of New Haven just explode to nine different locations across New England and Connecticut, Massachusetts. But we still really um, emphasize and live out that intentional community paradigm where we say, hey, we're doing life together. We are on mission following Jesus together. We are imperfect and broken and transparent and honest together. And uh, and um, we're going to radically love our community together. And so, yeah, it's been the big privilege of my life. I love our church and uh, I love the family that I get to do this with. I really like kind of broke the rule and hired all of my friends. And so, you know, um, basically anybody that has been a close friend of mine has eventually joined our staff over the last 10 years. And, um, and so it really is, uh, it comes with challenges, but it really is a gift to do, um, to do the dream of your heart with the people you love the most. And so um, it's been a joy. And that's a little bit about our church. But. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, you know, anytime we have a lot of leaders and people that run organizations listening in. So I, I, I think I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask a little bit about kind of what all you've gone through the last few years. But yeah. I think the first big question for me that I have when I have some, when I hear someone that kind of starts, let, let's just call it home, small community church, 
and then the thing starts growing. I mean, business owners yeah. go through it, uh, yep. you know, people that lead organizations, but let's talk about it in, um, in the church sense of it, because listen, we read in the book of Acts and we see they were out of homes, they were living together constantly. And then all of a sudden you start having buildings and you start having people come in once a week and you need volunteers and things like that. Talk yep. about some of the challenges. I mean, opportunities, we know you could spread a wide net and interact with a lot of people, but talk about some of the challenges of going from yep. small which is cool. Yep. We love it, but there's a yep. natural baked in, you got to grow, you got to scale in the world system. And, yep. you know, we could talk about Babylon and kingdom of God later if we were to get down that yep. road, but talk to us a little bit about that. I'm going to go ahead and talk about, I'm going to ask you later about the, the pandemic era, <laughs> what's going on there, yep. but, yep. but just talk about growth uh, with the church yeah. like that. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I think for us, um, one of the things that, you know, God, God sets us up. Right. And I, I think in my life, Tim, I, I spent uh, eight years in traveling ministry before I planted the church and working with over a hundred churches a year, um, doing youth events, doing college events, doing all kinds of different events. And really what I didn't realize was it was a preparation for me to just see local church and really begin to form in my heart and in my spirit, what was God calling me to. And so I went in with a very, formed view of what God was calling myself and my wife to do in church planting. And so I think one of the one of the most important things we did very, very early is we clearly articulated who we were and what we stood for. And um, those haven't changed in 10 years. And, and it allowed us because we put language around our heart and around our passions, it then allowed us to replicate those passions more intentionally. And so, you know, from the beginning, we talked about three really anchor values. And I know, you know, every business, every organization, they go through this process, but unfortunately, oftentimes it's like integrity, you know, like it's just like these canned words that like haven't been written on your soul. And so for us, you know, our three, and these aren't unique to our church, but they were deeply personal to us was the centrality of Jesus and the gospel that, that really had been changed by a person and that relationship with him was transformative and then intentional community that we were life on life flesh and blood live it out in a practiced environment that no one isolates there's no ivory towers that this is the this is the earth and the the gritty dirt of real christianity is lived out in relationship and so you have to have access you have to have real community and then thirdly this idea of mission that a healthy heart always gives away before it holds on that it's always about the next person and the grace of God spreading. And so those three values were always really central to us. Jesus at the center, intentional community, city mission. And so we've just lived those out and they have taken on different iterations, but like my wife and I, you know, 17 years married, we've had someone that doesn't have our last name living in our home for probably 15 of those 17 years. And so we've always been like living community, you know, like living, like really living community, whether it's welcoming somebody into our home, just living that practice of hospitality. You know, interestingly in the scriptures, one of the requirements of an elder or an overseer is that they're hospitable. And I feel like we skip that one. It's like, well, are you pure and are you holy? And do you know the scriptures? But it's like so many big church pastors are not actually hospitable. And it's like, well, who, when's the last time someone was in your home? You know, when's the last time you actually did life with people? And so for us, um, organizationally, this is something that we embodied, practiced, again, not perfectly, but even in our imperfection, we were exposed, we were honest with our, with our leaders and with our team. And then that culture, uh, because it had language and it had representation, the culture replicated. And then as we launched each campus, it still embodied that culture. And so now, you know, we have 65 employees, I think, and uh, we're in nine different locations in two states. And as we've replicated and multiplied, um, the spirit of the house has gone with each of those new churches. And, uh, and I think it's really been the underpinning of what's kept our hearts knit. We've never in 10 years had a church split or had a, you know, some like, but I think it's always been that unified heart and spirit, and then a generous spirit to give room for people's gifts that has then just allowed this thing to, to kind of replicate. Hmm. That, I, I... That's awesome. I sit there writing down notes and I saw a lot of in the book you wrote, Very Ordinary, that we'll talk about shortly, a lot of that mission there. So it, obviously there's a lot of uh, synergy, which which I think is good. But 
I'll ask you a question that I try to pin down a lot of leaders on. Yeah. I can tell you're cool with it, but uh, one of the things that go anywhere. One of the things that we observe, and a lot of people that come to you when they meet you and you tell them you're a pastor and they say they talk about church hurt, it yeah. it typically goes back to some degree of an ego of the leader, mostly men, let's go and say it. Typically, we don't see this in women. <laughs> we, see, we see men, we see men that have reached levels as their organization grew, and they may have had a heart at the beginning, but then at some point, something happened. I mean, I just listened to, I almost hate to say it, I listened to that rise and fall of Mars Hill and all yeah, that went on. Haven't we all? Gosh, that was... It grieved yep. me. It was well done, but it was grieving and all. Anyway, yep. what does Justin do yep. to keep that? Because listen, so I want to. I want to say things. You know, you. I listened to your to your sermon where you spoke in front of obviously a, a big crowd. You're up in front of people. You're you're doing media for a book. You're yep. you're a cool young, cool hip guy, man. What does Justin do? to stay grounded like we know that Justin needs to stay. Is that okay to ask? Oh my goodness. I think it's one of the most pertinent questions we can talk about right now. Um, I think there's two sides to that question. I'll try to answer them both. Um, I think there's the side of the heart and I think that actually is the biggest issue, but then there's also the side of the practical guardrails. And I think that's also necessary. It's actually a reflection of the heart. So I'll deal with both of them, but um, the heart side of things, I was in a conversation with a pastor that I had the privilege of getting to know who is uh, has been deeply connected to a number of the more nationally and internationally known uh, moral failures of leaders and pastors. And, and I asked him, I said, hey, what are like the two or three things that you see in the heart of some of these leaders that really see great success in ministry and then burn it all down? And I said, just give me like the top two or three characteristics. And he said, Justin, there actually aren't two or three characteristics. He said, there's one. This was actually one of the most helpful things. He said, there's one. He said, when the leader begins to see themselves as a celebrity, it's the beginning of the end. And that just was so insightful and helpful because there are going to be people who see leaders as celebrities. Uh, people saw Paul as a celebrity. They saw Jesus as a celebrity. You can't stop what people think and see. They're going to do what they're going to do. We live in a celebrity-driven culture. And so um, I think that, you know, trying to stop people from seeing you as a celebrity is virtually impossible if the Lord sees fit to give you a larger platform. The problem is how you see yourself. When you begin to see yourself as someone who's got it, as someone who's special, as someone who's better than fill in the blank, I do think that is the beginning of the end. And so um, now it's been a while for me of just maybe a year or so being really intentional. And I'll talk about some of the practical guardrails, but of just processing through the heart and saying, Lord, where am I giving myself privilege? Where am I denying the heart of the gospel? which is ultimately, Jesus said, right? He said that the church uh, will knock down the gates of hell and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, right? We all know that passage in Matthew 16. And then the next thing that happens is he says, so I'm gonna die, I'm gonna suffer, and I'm gonna go to the grave. And they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus actually rebukes Peter, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. Those two passages are connected. And, and what he's saying is, listen, the church doesn't advance from success to success. The church advances from sacrifice to sacrifice. That if you want to be a part of this movement, it's going to mean self-death. It's going to mean coming low so that God can bring you high. It's going to mean submitting and realizing your own brokenness so that God can make something beautiful. And so, so um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not saying I've done it perfectly. I don't think anybody has, but I, I think that the heart issue begins by saying, how do I pull apart in my own heart anything that would self-exalt, anything that would self-promote, and anything that would believe the false narrative of my own, uh, you know, superiority. You know what I mean? And so each is given a grace for a common good. Second Corinthians 10, it talks about being faithful to the sphere of service assigned to you. And that promotion says, uh, Psalm, I think it's 84, comes from the Lord, not from the East or from the West. So for me, any, any platform I have, it's by his grace and it's from him. And any platform I don't have, 
it's because he's not seen fit to give it to me. And so it just gives me a peace to say, okay, Lord, am I willing to live within the limits that you've created for my life and submit to those limits? And so anyways, I could talk a lot about that heart, Tim, but that's been a, a real intentional journey for me. And I, I do have a lot of great leaders walking with me that I've invited in to say, help me develop that heart. And so that's the next piece, which I think is the practical guardrails for any pastor or leader, any organizational leader that, that sees success in the American version of it, right? I think you have to deal with the heart issue first, but you have to simultaneously deal with the guardrail issue. And what I mean by that is you have got to put people around you who will speak truth and who have authority over you. And so whenever you have a person that's not willing to be under authority, they're actually bucking the model of Jesus, right? The centurion came to Jesus and said, I am a man under authority. Jesus said, I only do what I see the father doing. And so Jesus gladly submitted to the father, which allows the triune Godhead to work as one. And so, um, you know, in my own life, that starts with organizationally, it starts with our board of directors, which I'm just so grateful for. It's five godly men who set my salary, who can fire me, who have authority over uh, the structures within the organization. Every year, they interview my wife, they interview my kids, they interview my staff. Uh, they look for holes in my leadership, and then they hold me accountable to grow in those holes. And it's practical, and they're walking amongst our team, and, and they're learning uh, you know, my inconsistencies, and they're calling me to account for those things. And that's not, now once a year they do like a full assessment, but I'm speaking to them every single month, every month, giving them access into my life and giving them access into the leaders that report to me so they can see me, you know? But then right on the ground, we have what we call our central elder team and our central WLC, our Women's Leadership Council within our church. And those are people that are my deeply trusted partners that I do vision with. And I don't legislate to them. I uh, come alongside and partner with them. And so, when we're launching new churches or doing new things, we're doing it as a collective where we're either united in that or we just don't do it. And multiple times I've pulled back the vision because these guys haven't been in unity. And so that's, again, another layer of submission, you know. Um, and then, you know, on the on the real practical level, I then have people right in my life. And for me, it's on my staff, my executive team and my wife who are watching me day to day, holding me accountable, but then also you know, they have authority to go to those over me and say, hey, I'm concerned about Justin's pace. Hey, I'm concerned about Justin's attitude. Hey, I'm concerned about Justin's use of resources. And um, and so, you know, for me, I think you've got to have the practical, but then you also at the same time, you have to develop the heart. And, um, and no one is uh, immune to the uh, false narrative of our own glory, right? I think that we're all... Um, susceptible to it at our own places in life and so to think that you're immune is the beginning of the end you know um and so I, yeah i'm on a journey like a lot of leaders but i'm i'm trying to be really intentional about um the condition of my own heart and uh and how i see myself you know that's i i love you sharing that something that popped in my mind my wife and i went to bible school for a couple of years i won't mention the name or anything but often people would show up at the Bible school who was started by an individual. It was in a non-denominational arena. And so many people would walk in the doors there and they would ask the question. One of the first things that come out of their mouth is how long have you been following the person's name that started the Bible school? Got it. In my background, a little bit, uh, you probably tell, I like to ask these hard questions. I would say, I haven't been following them at all. I follow him and yeah, yeah. he's a teacher and I like what he says, but I don't follow that guy. And, and yeah. kind of like you talked about earlier, you travel to a lot of churches, which I think gives you a good paradigm. Some people grow up in one isolated environment and they don't understand the ecclesia or ecclesia that it's all connected. Yeah. There's this great connection that goes on. And so I would, you know, we, we go into church, we've been in Australia, New Zealand, we'd go visit. And my first question when I walk in with the greeter and all, I said, who's in charge here? It's kind of a trick question. I walk in Vox, I say, who's in charge here? And if, and if half the people point to Justin, I have this yep. little thing in my head going, hmm, I'm sure he's a great guy. I love Justin. I can tell I mean, he and I, we could hang out, Yep. but he's not in charge of this operation. <laughs> God, I hope not. Right. Because <laughs> you listen, we are not equipped. We are stewards of what we've been gifted with. So, all right. Speaking of that, we are all about redefining success here on Seek, Go, Create. Okay. 
And uh, depending on when people are listening, a couple years ago, uh, you know, worldwide pandemic starts hitting. You gave us a little glimpse of how the church formed up. And and we know, we all know, if you run a company, small business, there were a lot of challenges and issues, large companies too, but it was a little bit different. Uh, and and yep. running a church had to present a lot of challenges. Let's let's talk a little bit about the last two years, tough stuff, uh, things you've seen. My wife's name's Glory. Glorious moments that have come out of that. Talk about the last two years, yeah. and this is going to be kind of like a mini leadership teaching for people. And then we're going to talk about bearing the ordinary because I've got a lot of things I want to talk yeah. about in your book. So go ahead and let us know what the last few years have been like for you personally and the church. Yeah, I think that I think that COVID for all of us was the great revealer, right? I think uh, it was the the uh, the squeezing mechanism that allowed us to see what was on the inside. And I think for me. I am humbled and grateful that I do feel like as I look back over the last five years of my life that the Lord was preparing me for COVID. Now, some ugly things came out, but I also think that um, I had been really intentional over the last five years in developing healthy rhythms, in developing uh, a Sabbath lifestyle, in uh, embracing limits. And, um, and so I feel like when, when COVID hit, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as a church, we did go into a new mode, right? We started saying, okay, how do we serve people in this context? And and everybody was upset about something, right? And so there's some that are upset about the vaccine and some that are upset about masks and some that are upset about racial injustice and some that are upset about this and that. And all the ugly that was under the carpet just kind of came out, you know? And so we had people leaving the church like every church did and angry at me and accusing our church of a thousand different things. And we had tragic divorces of, of families that were ripping apart in the midst of uh, the pressures of being at home. We had physical abuse that was happening in, with kids. We had kids falling behind in schools. We had the elderly, you know, so so we were literally on the front lines, like, like many of us on the front lines of trying to um, serve people, you know, and I love, um, People don't realize this about the early church in, in 151 and 260 AD, there were massive plagues. They say now there were probably measles and smallpox. Uh, these huge plagues killed about a third of the Roman Empire and uh, and all the pagans ran away and, and they left their wives and their husbands and their kids literally to die in the streets to save their own lives from these plagues. But the Christians stayed. And the Christians served the community and Christianity went from 1% of the population to after those plagues, 53% of the population. It really was the establishment of the largest religion on earth. And it was through sorrow and loss and actually through a plague. And so um, when I, I really felt in my spirit, both for our church and for me personally, that COVID was a strategic opportunity for the people of God mm -hmm. to say, hey, how are we going to respond when we are uh, accused and attacked and maligned and neglected? And how are we going to respond when the world is losing its mind? And I think that, you know, our leaders, um, we, we did our best to say we are going to serve. We are going to serve and then we're going to serve and then we're going to serve. And so it's really interesting, like as a church community, our attendance fell apart and our giving went through the roof. Um, it, you know, it's just wild. And so we gave away more money. We served more people. Um, we, you know, we grew by millions of dollars over the last two years, millions and millions of dollars in generosity. And so the church family in our hearts have become so much stronger. And now we're seeing this flood of people who are coming back to Jesus because of, uh, the shaking that's happened where it was like, wow, um, I need God in my life. And so, Tim, it's really been interesting for me, like, and I've been saying this for a long time, and I felt this. I'm always like that weird guy that, like, when I was a new Christian as a teenager, I was like, God, I hope I get to live through the end times. You know, like, I mean, most people be like, no, man, we don't want to live through the end times. But I'm like, that would be so exciting, you know, like, and so I don't know when the date is that Jesus is coming back. I'm not going to predict that. But I do, I do think that in every uh, great tragedy, there is divine opportunity. So you look at Billy Graham and the huge revivals that he saw in the 50s. Well, it was right after World War II. 
You look at D.L. Moody and the great revivals that he saw in the 1819, early 1900s, it was right after the Civil War. God often uses these catalytic tragedies to draw people back to heaven. And so um, I, I do think that we're on the hinge of that right now, and we're already seeing the fruit of it in our church. And so it's been actually a really exciting time of uh, people's hearts being more and more open to God than ever. Yeah. Any, um, any for, for like a leader or, or someone who's head of an organization, uh, any tips or practical? I mean, we know spiritual, anything, uh, anything that you might share that helped you move through this? Because listen, when all of a sudden you said, you, yep. you know, someone says you can't meet, uh, you probably, I mean, I hate to say, you know, concerned about finances. I love to hear that the yep. giving went up. But uh, yeah. just any, any just quick uh, tip, encouragement or something for someone who might still be in the midst of going through it? Yep. Yeah, I think um, I think first thing is the, the, the biggest gift you can give to your organization, to your church is a healthy soul. I think that's the best gift that you can give. So I think that you do have to care for your own soul. Um, and, and I think that we historically as Americans have been atrocious at that. And so I'm not talking about being selfish, but I'm talking about um, if you don't have uh, a, a centeredness and a health internally, uh, you can't really be very helpful externally. And you're going to end up burning your best employees and offending your best people and making a big mess. And so I think that caring for your own soul is, a, is not a selfish act. I think that's a wise act. But I think the other thing, and this was the big takeaway for me in COVID, is that as Americans, especially as Westerners, we do not like the idea of limits. We don't like to be limited. We believe this mantra that says, there are no limits. You can be whatever you want. If you want to be an NFL athlete, you can go after it. If you want to be a great whatever, you know, and it's just not true. God has given each of us a grace and we have to embrace those limits. And I think that COVID has forced us to confront our own limitations. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we can thrive within the sphere of influence we've been given and stop overextending ourselves to try to be something we're not. And so if your business is limited, if the circumstances create limits, always pushing against those is going to end up in bankruptcy. You have to actually lean into the limits for the moment and realize bigger is not always better, more is not always better, sometimes less is more, and I'm going to embrace those limits. And I think that's one of the reasons we were able to really thrive through this last season. Mm, yeah, that's really good. One of the things that's, uh, you know, I actually was grieving, I recognize, in the first few months, early part of 2020. I'm trying to, the year's a little bit fuzzy now. And, uh, no. and, you know, in my quiet time, I felt like the Lord was saying we were actually expecting our first grandchild through my daughter and her husband. Wow. And, and he kind of said, there's, there's some birth pains going on that mm -hmm. are not just with your daughter. And, and Justin, I, I believe what I heard through that was the Babylonian system is always in the state of a crumble yeah. and the kingdom of God is always shining the light through that. And, yep. and, and to me, the comparison, I'm going to tie this into the book I just read that fin I finished last night, which is a great book, Bury Your Ordinary, is that there are a lot of people that are trying to live in a state of comfort. Uh, yeah, right. they, yeah they're, they're, they're pushing limits, but they're pushing it to gain more comfort and right. more complacency. And, and so somewhere along the way, you decided to write a book, which is Bury Your Ordinary and get some great points on it. Because here's what I love about it, Justin. I want to say this right out of the gate. You were not in any way saying you got to go to church every week to, to gain right. your, to gain your ticket to wherever, or you've got to check this box. You got to work the parking lot ministry. No, these are all personal <laughs> habits <laughs> And That's I'm right. sitting here, uh, truthfully, I'm reading it with a little bit of a critical, you know, a critical yep. mind. That's kind of the way I'm wired, just so you know, yep. looking for the place where he said, OK, come to my church and everything will be OK. No, man, yep. these are yep. personal habits, which are awesome. Why was this book written? When was it written? Was it written in the midst yep. of this before or after? And then I've got yep. a few points I want to specifically ask before we finish up here in the next uh, next few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Tim, I think that that whole idea of comfort is just huge, right? So uh, I don't think it's wrong for the human heart to pursue comfort. I think that we have been sold a bag of goods as to how to get to comfort, right? And so we think comfort is an external state. 
So give me a nicer chair, give me, you know, richer food, give me more money in my bank account, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if COVID's proven anything or if American culture's proven anything is that you can have the world and you can lose your soul, right? And so we've got people all around us who are rich as can be and miserable as can be. And so clearly comfort is an internal reality first and then an external thing on the on the outside. And so, um, so this book really challenges that idea of what is ordinary. You know, what does it mean to have an ordinary spirituality? And uh, and so you know, this idea that um, that uh, you know, first of all, I think a lot of Christians their ordinary spirituality is leading them to a place where they have no internal comfort. And so through the process of this book, this book was written really over about 20 years. And and I, I asked the question, uh, what are habits that help my heart find the true comfort, which is Jesus? And so how do I grow spiritually so that I can experience a deeper reality of internal comfort in my soul of relationship with God? And, uh, you know, honestly, through practice, through living in community, through walking with first five, 10, then 20, then hundreds, then thousands of people through this process of spiritual development, what I realized is there are certain habits that just kind of point my life. They point my life back to comfort. And one of the things that we mix up in our world is we say, hey, what you need to do, Tim, is you need to find out what your deepest desire is. And whatever that deep desire is, you need to pursue it. And if you get it, then you're going to be successful and happy. And if you don't get it, then you're going to be miserable. And so most of us either spend our whole life trying to get it and not getting it, or obtaining that deep desire. I want to be a famous this or that or whatever. I want to be rich. And then realizing we're still not happy, right? And so that's the, that's the bag of goods that the world sells us. What Jesus sells us is he says, actually, your whole life, your whole life is supposed to be aimed at following me. I'm not a section of your life. I'm the center of your life. And if you will aim your whole life at following me, I will rewire your heart so that you experience deeper joy in knowing me than you would in anything else. And so that's kind of the premise of the book is that knowing Jesus really is the center of my life. And then how can I now develop habits that point my heart to knowing him more? And they're really practical. I mean, they're really just honestly like basic practical habits. Now the mistake, and I'll shut up in a second here, but the mistake that I think so many Christians make is they hear these habits and they go, okay, I do these and now God's going to love me. And, and that is the great misnomer. And that's why the second chapter talks about how Christians grow. Grace has to be the foundation of my life. And then when I understand that I have received unmerited favor through the cross, now, now I pursue these habits out of love, not out of obligation. And that really does allow for the fullness of joy when you find them. Yeah, that, that's good. More of a, since we're talking practical, practical question. What yep. was the writing process like for you? Did you write? Did you have help? I just finished yep. writing a novel myself. So these two fingers wow. typed out every 70,000 words of the inspirational yep. novel that it was. But uh, what was the right? Is this your first book? Is this your first uh, book you've written? Have you well, written more? It depends who you ask, right? So I, I wrote my first book at 23. No one read it. I'm 39 oh. now. And, and then I wrote another book at 25 and then 27. And then, so this is in, in one form or another, this is probably like my 50th book, but I don't know. It's not really my 50th, but I've been, I've been writing before that I was writing songs. And so, yeah, so I wrote this book. It's getting faster for me. You know, I think for, for any writer, you learn like what your voice sounds like in a book, you know? And, and I'm still in that process, but it is getting faster and faster. This is the first book I've really uh, published beyond just my circle of friends and, you know, and kind of our ministry in particular. So this, in a lot of ways, is my first book, but it's not my first writing. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's been a process. I still am in the process. I wouldn't consider myself a great writer by any means. I'm, I'm a writer on a journey. Um, but, but yeah, I wrote it myself and uh, David Cook, my publisher, came alongside me and they kind of helped me say, hey, Justin, this sentence doesn't make any sense. And, and you know, they kind of pushed it to the next level. And so I think it's a lot better because of their input. Uh, but they gave me a lot of license to just share what is in my heart uh, through this book. And so, um, yeah, it was written, you know, but but the content of the book actually was was genuinely written over 20 years. I mean, it's been a process of asking that question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and what habits will point my heart in that direction? And then outlining these seven specific habits and then imperfectly living them over decades and then sharing that on a larger scale. And so it's not like, hey, I had this idea. Let's write a book. It's been one of those things that I've been teaching this now in our church for 10 years. And then actually, even before that, 
uh, in our traveling ministry. And, and finally, enough people said, would you please just write this down for us? Uh, that I said, you know, I think I, I think I want to, you know, and so that was kind of the, the origins of the book. Yeah. What'd you learn? What'd you learn about yourself during the process, writing process? Yeah, that's a great question, Tim. Um, I think, um, I think I learned that when I'm diligent and disciplined, uh, I can, I can write a book, <laughs> you know, I can, I can write a book when I'm diligent and disciplined that, that the content is there. Um, I learned that, um, yeah, that there, I guess I would say that I've learned that there, I have something to say. It's just a matter of the discipline of, of, you know, um, keeping harvesting all the things that I'm already writing or preaching mm -hmm. or speaking in a way that makes it helpful for me to communicate in book form later. Um, I learned that I have a lot of growing to do as a, as a writer. Um, I learned that recording an audiobook is pretty fun. Uh, we had a good time doing that. That was a, that was a really fun experience. Uh, I also started preaching during my audiobook more than once. And the, the audiobook company would be like, uh, stop, you're not reading the book. You're, you're just vamping now. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I was, I just got going there. And they're like, read what's on the page. And I'm like, yes, 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 you're right. So, uh, I did learn that too, but, um, but yeah, um, yeah, I learned that it doesn't have to be grueling, painful, and terrible. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, uh, for me, historically, whenever I wrote anything, it was grueling, painful, and terrible. But this one wasn't. This one was, it was a grace. And I've got another book coming out next year uh, that I've already written that it's in the editing process now. And that one was even easier. And so I'm thinking, wow, okay, this doesn't have to be so bad. <laughs> sure. Well, and let me just say it's excellent. And it reads very well because I, I think when you're reading something, and you're not aware that you're reading something is a good yeah. testimony to it being a, a well-written book as opposed to going, ah, eh, this feels awkward. Very, very well-written. I highly recommend it. There are two of the seven steps that I want to talk more about here in our time Great. we got. And, and it, it, I mean, listen, all seven fit together perfectly. And the two steps, I don't have it pulled up here, but you'll probably know which ones they are. One is One is the... Um, is the one hour that I yes. call your quiet time of stillness and yep. no distractions. It's what I promote with leaders that I coach and work with, that if you're not spending quiet time thinking with all that's coming at us in the world today, then yep. you're probably missing stuff. Yes. And then the second is the aspect of Sabbath or rest. So yes. whichever one you want to talk about first, I mean, and we could kind of, if we have time, maybe go over another one or two, but let's at least cover those two in our oh, next, good. you know, five to 10 minutes that we've got together. So fire away. Yeah, absolutely. So habit one, I always start everyone that I walk with. If they say, Hey, I want to grow as a Christian. I want to mature in Jesus. The first habit I get them working on sounds at first glance, kind of elementary, but honestly, in walking with people to follow Jesus for the last, you know, 25 years, I've learned that the vast majority of people skip this one. And this is what you just mentioned. I call it the habit of relationship that the first hour of my day, I get alone and I seek God. And people think that's unrealistic. I don't have that much time. Well, you watch four and a half hours of TV a day, right? You spend six and a half hours looking at your phone every day. I think you do have time. I just don't think that it's priority, right? And so this habit of relationship, you said it perfectly, Tim, you know, in the world of uh, everything moving a thousand miles an hour, if you wanna actually head in an intentional direction, you need quiet stillness every day. And so in the book, In the Habit of Relationship, I really talk about what could I do during that hour? And that's not legislative. It's more uh, just some, here's some advice. Here's some ways that you can spend an hour. Um, I've been doing this uh, just an hour every morning alone with God uh, for over 20 years now. And it's been a huge part of my spiritual journey. Um, and so I just give some insight into what could you do during that hour to really make it helpful and fruitful. And I use the illustration in the Gospel of Mark where uh, Jesus escapes for his time alone in the morning and Peter has to go find him. And I love this text because Peter says, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And he says, let's go to the next city because that's why I've come. And I always tell people, if you really want to live with everyone's voices running around in your head, then skip your hour in the morning. But if you want to be able to clearly see what's next, then you need that time alone. And so you move from everyone to what's next when you keep that hour in the beginning of your day alone with God. And so uh, that's the habit of relationship. That's a really critical habit. The, the sixth habit I talk about is this habit of Sabbath. And uh, I think it's probably the most neglected of the habits. And that is, I mean, an actual Sabbath. I mean, 
that one out of seven days for 24 hours, you pause, pray, and play. And so most people, you know, a lot of Christians, this will be Sunday, and that's great. Um, I always encourage people to start it in the evening, end it in the evening. So maybe it's like 6 p.m. on Saturday to 6 p.m. on Sunday. And you're not looking to be legalistic about this. It's not like, oh, my goodness, I can never answer my phone. But by and large, I really do encourage people to not answer their phones, to not answer their texts, to not answer the emails. If I think that the world is going to slip off its axis because I can't answer my emails, then I have a very distorted view of life and it will destroy my own soul. And so this habit of Sabbath is literally just the weekly practice of a 24-hour period where I pause, where I play, have fun with my family family, with friends, and where I pray, where I designate specific time to go to church, to worship God, to set my heart on him as my priority. And so um, that is a revolutionary habit. Again, the vast majority of Christians say, amen, and we have almost no intentionality around it. And so um, I, I really do challenge those two habits, I think, uh, will mess up your ordinary life in huge ways. And that's just two of the, five, two of the seven, but, uh, but they're just so critical to a healthy heart. Yeah, and you give a lot more detail, practical things. I just heard, I think, a child in the background. So, yeah, my two year old. <laughs> you, you do this obviously with children and all too, right? Practical. Do you do it early? Do you get up early or what's your, what's your rhythm? Yeah. You know, it's so important because people say to me all the time, oh, Justin, you're a pastor. You know, I can't do that. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I mean, I did it for 15 years before I was a pastor. And now I have four kids. I mean, I have a 15 year old, a 12 year old, an eight year old and a two-year-old. And uh, and so for us, it's like we're changing diapers and going to basketball games. And so I understand busy, but it's just all about priority. It's all about priority. So for me, yeah, it's early. It's usually 5.45 in the morning I'm up. So not crazy, crazy early. I've got friends that are up earlier than that. But you know, my routine is typically uh, I'm wrapping that up by 6.45 to 7 o'clock. Uh, and then I'm off to the gym. And then I'm at my desk typically by 8.30. And so um, you know, that's my routine in the mornings. Uh, and, and yeah, that hour is just sacred. And so, you know, my wife though, she, she has an hour too, you know, she has that same discipline in her life. And so we've been doing this. Sometimes we do that time together and, but most of the time we do it by ourselves. And, um, and it really is a sacred time, uh, before the world starts buzzing. Yeah. And, and I think that's the challenge. The world is buzzing, yeah. at a rapid rate. I can't hold my phone up because it's up here, but you know, we've got these great tools, yeah. Yep. Anyway, that that are a lot coming at us and we'll include yep. links down where people can get the book. But but Justin, I just kind of felt something that I believe that you can deliver to people listening probably in a very unique way. And I've got one more question we'll wrap up with shortly that people kind of know yep. how I like to finish. But I have no doubt that there are a lot of people out in the world right now that are hopeless that are going yeah. through struggles, they're going through challenges. We just mentioned taking an hour a day for quiet and still, and they can't yeah. even imagine it. Right. And and I'm going to strongly recommend they get the book and read that. However, there's still something, their souls have been damaged either with all that's yes. gone on, the division, all that kind of stuff. We could go through all yes. that. But Justin, I want to give you a moment and whatever a moment is, I'm going to let you, let the Holy Spirit lead and guide you. I'm going to let you speak directly to people and we've got a lot of business leaders, leaders of organizations that typically listen yep. in, but people from all over the world. I, I would love yep. for you to just share, share with yep. people before we wrap up here, anything that's on your heart, anything that the Holy Spirit yes. guides you to share. So go ahead. Is that okay? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I remember as a teenage kid reading uh, the knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And he says in that book, what comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. And I remember when I read that, I just put the book down and thought, well, I just got my money's worth because uh, that thought blew my mind. And I want to suggest to everyone listening that any problem you're facing, any problem, relational problem, financial problem, internal problem, any problem you're facing can be traced back to an inaccurate view of God. And and uh, and an inaccurate view of God often then leads to an inaccurate view of myself, right? And so I I think a lot of us, especially in this season of life, are in this battle with hopelessness, and it's because you have not seen how much he loves you. And and I I, I what I, I want to just emphasize this whole idea of 
oftentimes we work really hard to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves less guilty, to make ourselves feel worthy. And you're actually going about it the wrong way. You have to instead realize that you're not worthy, that you can't make yourself better, that there are parts of you that are in fact broken and to deny them is to deny reality. But the scandal of the cross of Jesus Christ is that even though that is absolutely true, and I'm actually far more sinful than I realized, I am at the exact same time far more loved than I imagined. That there actually is a God who cares for you, knows you. The scripture says he counts the hairs on your head. I mean, that is just a ridiculous thought. But it's not hyperbole. It's practical. He actually does. He knows you so intimately and personally. And you're listening to this right now on Facebook, podcast, wherever you might be listening to it, because God wanted to remind you right now that he cares. You know, I love what Peter says in the scriptures. He says, cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And I think this is where we have such an inaccurate view of God is that we don't really believe that he cares for me. And I want to just remind you that you don't have to question that because he already proved it on the cross. He proved it by dying. The evidence that God cares is right out in front of us, that he came, lived, died, exchanged his life for yours so that you could be blameless. That's the word that the Bible uses. I remember when I first stumbled on that word in Colossians 2, as a teenage kid, I circled it in my Bible and I thought, it's got to be a typo. Blameless? I'm not blameless. I'm I'm guilty. I, I'm, I'm foolish. I'm selfish. I'm so blameful. Why could, how could you call me blameless? And we have to understand that that is the love of God and the grace that's available to us. And it's that you can stand perfect before God forever, simply by trusting in Christ. And that for me is the fuel of hope in my own heart, that I know that I'm loved by him. And if I'm loved by him, well, then the world can go crazy and death can approach me and chaos can ensue around me because I have an anchor for the soul. That's what the Bible calls it. And it's a hope that goes beyond the curtain, goes beyond the brokenness of this world and enters into a place that cannot be moved. And so I just want to encourage any person that feels rejected, you listening to this podcast right now, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's providence. God planned for you to hear these words so that you could be reminded again that there is a God who cares. He knows the details and the specifics of your life, and he will walk with you if you will trust his love. And uh, that, that truth has personally changed me and changed my outlook on everything. And um, I don't just believe it because I'm a preacher. I believed it long before I was a preacher, and I'll believe it long after I'm done preaching uh, because it's the truth that's changed me uh, at the deepest part of who I am. Mm, that's beautiful, Justin. That, that's the gospel. That's <laughs> that is the good news. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. I know it touched someone. Where can people find the book? Where do they need to go to find the book? Yeah. If you go to barrieryourordinary.com, there's actually an eight-week small group uh, booklet that's available for free just to download. It's one of the ways you could just kind of scope the material out for free. Check it out. There's also eight different sermons that I've done on the topics of the book that will kind of unpack some other aspects of the book for people as well. And so barrieryourordinary.com is a great place to check out for some free resources. But uh, voxchurch.org has a ton of resources uh, that our church makes available as well on this topic. And of course, you can buy it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place you want to buy books. Uh, it's available there. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an honor to be on. And hopefully someone is encouraged by this book. Excellent. I'm sure they are. We'll include all that down in the, in the notes and also in all of our links. Justin, we are seek, go, create. Those three words yeah. mashed together. Yeah. And final question for you. I'm going to make you choose one of those words that maybe resonates or just speaks to you right now. Seek, go, or create. Which one and why? Yeah. Uh, so I'd say personally, that's a great question. I would say personally, seek for sure. Uh, I, I think that, I think that uh, at least in my context, what I'm seeing, but also across America, that we are in a seek moment. That it's a moment to seek the Holy Spirit for his power. It's a moment to seek God for renewal and spiritual awakening. I think that everyone on planet Earth has been through the, the ringer the last 
two years and now it's a moment you know it's time as the prophet says to break up the fallow ground so that we can seek the lord until he rains righteousness upon us and so i think it is a moment to lean into seeking god and just watch the good he makes out of this brokenness Mm, that's beautiful. And uh, I think that goes back to what we mentioned earlier, the quiet time and the Sabbath that you yeah. brought up. Listen, yeah. folks, get the book, Bury Your Ordinary. I so appreciate Justin's heart. And listen, I talked to a lot of folks and I can pick up on genuineness and authenticity. And let me tell you what, this guy to me is the real deal. So check out all that he's doing. And here's another big request as we wrap up here especially that word of encouragement he gave right there at the end, that gospel, that good news. I want you to take a screenshot and share the podcast episode. Share it if you're on YouTube, watching it, whatever. Share this. You know someone that needs to hear this message. They may need the book. They may need that. They, they may need all that, but they may need that last three to five minutes that he shared at the end. Share this episode with them. That is one of the most powerful ways that people can hear with all these new tools and mediums that we have on YouTube and social media. So make sure you do that. We have new episodes every Monday that drop. So make sure you subscribe and listen in. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.